Hey everyone, welcome back to Vassals of Kingsgraves, Agatha Christie reread. This is episode 40. My name is Bina007 and I will be your host today for our mini pod on the Miss Marple mystery, A Murder is Announced. Why is this a mini pod? Because Pat and I don't really like it. This comes apparently in the teeth of all critical opinion. The Agatha Christie lawmaster John Curran loves this. He thinks it's one of her best written books. The All About Agatha podcast that we love has it in their top 10. We don't even think it merits a full discussion and we'll get into why or I'll get into why on this mini pod. So as always, we will be spoiler free until the end credits music and then we'll get into the elaborate plotting and clues afterwards. This book was heavily promoted when it was released in June 1950 as being the 50th book that Agatha Christie had written. And you can see why publishers would want to do this. It's 1950, it's new decade, 50 books for the for 1950. Um, in our reread, it's only book number 40 because we haven't done the short story collections. And also we skipped the book that was set in ancient Egypt because it's not very good. Um, okay, so for us, this is the 40th book, but we are entering into the new decade, which is interesting. It's exciting. Remember now that Agatha Christie is 60 years old, and I would argue that she is past her peak performance. It doesn't mean that we're not going to get great novels to come, but I think you will see maybe more of these mini pods as we start getting a slightly lower quality and more repetitive output. So A Murder is Announced is an intriguing title, and maybe it's one of the best titles. Agatha Christie certainly thought so, along with Ordeal by Innocent. The plot summary is as follows, and it's probably one of the best openings in Agatha Christie. A notice appears in a local newspaper for Chipping Cleghorn. What a brilliant name for a quintessential, almost pastiched British village. A murder is announced and will take place on Friday the 29th of October at Little Paddocks at 6.30pm. Friends accept this, the only intimation. So someone's placed an advert in a local newspaper, much to the surprise of the owner of Little Paddocks, Miss Letitia Blacklock. Um, but naturally, all the nosy people in the village do turn up <laughs> that evening at 6.30, expecting maybe a murder mystery party. Um, as the clock strikes 6.30, the lights go out in the living room very dramatically. A door swings open. There's a man with a blinding torch who demands that the guests stick him up and shots are fired. And at the end of this set of shots being fired the owner of the house miss blacklock is bleeding apparently she's been grazed by a bullet but even more weirdly the person who came with the gun is actually found to have maybe shot himself so he is the first murder victim but maybe by suicide so essentially that's the setup of this fascinating book it isn't a closed house mystery but it's sort of a a village mystery with all the typical characters one would expect and a very complex murder mystery to set and solve. The one thing I really do love about this book is how it chronicles the disruptive social change after World War II. And really, this is something that we've seen in many of the post-war novels. Um, I would argue that Taken at the Flood really is a novel about social change. Crooked House has a lot of that in it too, although it's not the focus. And certainly here in A Murder is Announced, I would argue that the plot almost relies on the fabric of village life in England having been irreparably changed by World War II. 
all the characters are struggling to deal with food rationing. Um, you know, this idea that a basic level of collusion and dishonesty have been introduced into normal village life as people are trying to figure out how to eat. And, you know, this is five years after the war, but the rationing continues. The other thing that's going on is, of course, post-war, the fabric of the village is breaking down. You have old houses that are pulled down and new developments are built. This is an era of housing crisis. You know, we have to put up a lot of houses very quickly in England in this period. And people are moving to villages without letters of introduction. Miss Marple's going to comment on this. And so the idea that even if someone new moves to the village, they have credentials has broken down. And then added to that, we have a couple of characters who are refugees or who have been displaced by war. And the idea that events that might have taken place on the continent or in other countries can follow you home because of that movement of people. So it's a very unsettled time, but all played out in the superficial twee Miss Marple country setting that I think a lot of people think Agatha Christie is, but of course we know she isn't, and that she's much more modern, much more a chronicler of her, a chronicler of her age, and much more subversive in some ways. So focusing a little bit on the elements of social change in the novel, there are a couple of passages that speak to the impact of war and death. There's a character called Philippa Hames, who is a war widow with a young son. Um, this is what's said of her. She's a very nice girl. Her husband was killed in Italy and she has a boy of eight who is at a prep school and whom I've arranged to have here in the holidays. And this is what someone who rather wants to be her lover says to Philippa. All right, you adored him and he's dead. Well, other girls' husbands are dead, lots of them, and some of the girls love their husbands. They tell you so in bars and cry a bit when they're drunk enough and then want to go to bed with you so that they'll feel better. It's one of the ways of getting over it, I suppose. You've got to get over it, Philippa. You're young and you're extremely lovely. So this idea that in Britain at this time there are many young war widows and look at the honesty of Agatha Christie talking about the need to have sex still, to have a sex life and maybe to forget through it. Not quite the tween Miss Marple novel that people might imagine. We also get references back to the Blitz and the impact of the Blitz again to unmoor and unanchor people by destroying their artefacts. Quote, then the storage depository was blitzed. Mrs. Girdler was very upset at losing so many personal souvenirs and family papers. I'm afraid there's nothing of that kind, end quote. And then a fair amount of rationing. This is a village, so people have means to keep animals and to, to grow produce. But this is very much a time when food is a constant source of concern, as well as energy and fuel to burn. Quote, bull mastiff puppies, read out Mrs. Swettenham. I really don't know how people manage to feed big dogs nowadays. I really don't, end quote. And then here's Patrick Sweaton talking about having enough coke for the fire. Quote, the precious, precious coke, said Patrick mockingly. As you say, the precious coke, but otherwise there would have been even more precious coal. You know, the fuel office won't even let us have the little bit that's due to us each week. Not unless we can definitely say that we haven't got any other means of cooking. I suppose there was once heaps of coke and coal for everybody, said Julia, with the interest of one hearing about an unknown country. Yes, and cheap too. And anyone could go and buy as much as they wanted without filling in anything. And there wasn't any shortage. There was lots of it there. All kinds and qualities. And not all stones and slates like what we get nowadays. It must have been a wonderful world, said Julia with awe in her voice. 
I kind of feel that this is how people must have felt sort of coming out of communism when suddenly all the goods were available to them, but in reverse. But yes, you see those privations and it's hard not to read Agatha Christie's own frustrations in those voices. We then get in sort of the we then get references to the black market. Patrick said, I'm warning Julia not to go in for these black market deals. It was all very slick, but I don't believe they were talking about anything of the sort. So this idea that you cannot trust people, the people you do business with, the people you live in the village with, social bounds have been broken. And then we have a wartime refugee called Mitzi, who we think may have come from Hungary. And she's bemoaning the lack of ingredients for a cake. Impossible to make such a cake. I need for it chocolate and much butter and sugar and raisins. And then Miss Blacklock replies, you can use this tin of butter that was sent to us from America and some of the raisins we were keeping for Christmas. So isn't it amazing that you have to rely on butter being sent from America? And how was it not rancid by the time you got there? I guess the tin? This is how Mitzi is described. And don't you worry, we're going to get into Mitzi, the character, a lot. And whether or not she is a Holocaust refugee and just how Agatha Christie chooses to treat her. Again, Miss Blacklock. Please don't be too prejudiced against the poor thing because she's a liar. I do really believe that, like so many liars, there is a real substratum of truth behind her lies. I mean that, though, to take an instance, her atrocity stories have grown and grown until every kind of unpleasant story that has ever appeared in print has happened to her or her relations personally. She did have a bad shock initially and did see one at least of her relations killed. I think a lot of these displaced persons feel, perhaps justly, that their claim to our notice and sympathy lies in their atrocity value and so they exaggerate and invent. End quote. So I'm just going to leave it there for the moment because I think we'll get into that as the novel goes on. And then finally, to chronicle the social changes of our times, one of the big ones we've referred to this on previous podcasts was the independence of India, and therefore a lot of the colonial administrators and army officials coming back, repatriating home to England. And here we have Colonel Easterbrook, who's a little bit of a booby. He's sort of, I always say this with Agatha Christie, the sort of character she would have admired in Colonel Race early on, started mocking a little bit with Colonel Arbuthnot in Murder on the Orient Express. And by now she has rather lost her patient. Patience. In India, I remember, she said mournfully, we had 18 servants, 18, not counting the ayah, just as a matter of course. And at home, when I was a girl, we always had three, though mother always felt it was terribly poverty stricken not to be able to afford a kitchen maid. So you can see this sort of the bemoaning of a loss of quality of life and standard of living. But the real change, as I said before, is that of the lack of letters of introduction, the, the fact that people don't know who's moving into even very small villages, that before the war and the time of maybe even murder at the vicarage, but certainly earlier in the mysterious affair at Styles, everybody would have known everybody. This is Miss Marple. Every village and small country place is full of people who've just come and settled there without any ties to bring them. The big houses have been sold and the cottages have been converted and changed. And people just come, and all you know about them is what they say of themselves. They've come, you see, from all over the world. People from India and Hong Kong and China, and people who used to live in France and Italy, in little cheap places and odd islands. And people who've made a little money and can afford to retire. But nobody knows anymore who anyone is. You can have Benares Baraswear in your house and talk about Tiffin and Chota Hasri, and you can have pictures of Taormina and talk about the English church and the library, like Miss Hinchcliffe and Miss Murgatroyd. You can come from the south of France, have spent your life in the east. 
People take you at your own valuation. They don't wait to call until they've had a letter from a friend saying that the so-and-sos are delightful people and she's known them all their lives. So there we are, a time of real turbulent change. And before we get into the characters and the adaptations and all of the plot mechanics of this novel, let's also just take a brief moment to talk about the historical events between the publication of the last novel that we discussed, Crooked House, which came out in 1949, and the publication of this book in June 1950. So this is what readers would have had in their peripheral vision and their understanding of the world when this book came out. In June 1949, George Orwell's dystopian masterpiece 1984 is published. In July 1949, the de Havilland Comet, the world's first jet-powered airliner, made its first flight in England. How marvellous. In August 1949, the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation was established. In September 1949, The Third Man, with a screenplay by Graham Greene, set in Allied-occupied Vienna, was released. It won the Grand Prix at Cannes. And that marvellous scene with Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton at the end, I think sums up some of the moral decay and unmooring that we see in this novel. And of course, this is a novel, all of, this is a film, The Third Man, all about the black market and rationing and the difficulty of getting stuff, which is such a big theme in this book. Also, in September 1949, the Federal Republic of Germany is officially founded. Um, a Warner Brothers cartoon, The Fast and Furious, is released, starring Wile E. Coyote in The Roadrunner. And US Christian evangelist Billy Graham starts his Los Angeles crusade. October 1949, the People's Republic of China is officially proclaimed. So is the German Democratic Republic, East Germany. December 1949, we have the retreat of the government of the Republic of China to Taiwan, declaring Taipei its temporary capital, although we know that this has now continued for more than 50 years. January 1950, Klaus Fuchs, German emigre and physicist, confesses to an MI5 interrogator that he is a Soviet spy. So adding to that air of paranoia and Cold War intrigue. Also in January 1950, Harry S. Truman orders the development of the hydrogen bomb in response to the detonation of the Soviet Union's first atomic bomb. March 1950, Egypt demands that Britain removes all its troops from the Suez Canal. April 50, South Africa, the Group Areas Act is passed, formally segregating the races. May 1940, UNRWA, the United States Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East begins operations very much in the news today. Tolland Man is unearthed in Denmark. Robert Schumann presents his proposal for the creation of a pan-European organisation that will go on to become the European Union. So amidst all the Cold War and China and this international strife, people trying to bring the world together. And very close to my heart, the first race in the inaugural FIA Formula One World Champion is held at Silverstone in England. The Brooklyn Battery Tunnel is formally open to traffic in New York. And the pilot series of the world's longest running soap opera, very much in the vein of what people think Miss Marple is, The Archers, is first published on the BBC Light programme. And then in the month of publication, June 1950, the Korean War be begins. So the world is once again at hot war and not just at cold war. OK, so let's move into the novel itself. So our investigating crew, we have Miss Jane Marple, our elderly spinster and amateur detective. We have Inspector Dermot Craddock, who's the lead detective of the case. They have consultations with Sir Henry Clithering, who we've seen before, the retired head of Scotland Yard, who is actually godfather to Craddock and a great believer in Miss Marple's powers. 
We also have the Chief of the County Investigation, Chief Constable George Risedale, who's Craddock's superior. So those are the investigators. Now to the house where the murder took place. We have Letitia Blacklock. Um, She's in her 60s. This is how she's described. Letitia, you know, has really got a man's mind. She hasn't any feminine feelings or weaknesses. I don't believe she was ever in love with any man. She was never particularly pretty and she didn't care for clothes. She used as little makeup. She used a little makeup in deference to prevailing custom, but not to make herself look prettier. And she's a fascinating character because it turns out she worked in the city in finance. And really, although she came in as a secretary, she was effectively made an investment partner with her boss and did real investment work and was hugely successful. So evidently a deeply intelligent and shrewd woman and one that's very progressive, I think, and ahead of her time. Well, certainly her boss was ahead of his time. Letitia had a sister called Charlotte Blacklock, much loved. Belle Girdler tells Inspector Craddock that Charlotte died in Switzerland years earlier during the war. Um, At present, therefore, Letitia Blacklock is living with her childhood friend, Dora Bunner, known as Bunny, who is rather flaky and fluffy and really quite adorable, always making gaffes and a little bit sort of funny. Um, This is how she's described. She and Dora had been at school together. Dora then had been a pretty, fair-haired, blue-eyed, rather stupid girl. Her being stupid hadn't mattered because her gaiety and high spirits and her prettiness had made her an agreeable companion. She ought, her friend thought, to have married some nice army officer or a country solicitor. She had so many good qualities, affection, devotion, loyalty, but life had been unkind to Dora Bunner. She had had to earn her living. She had been painstaking, but never competent at anything she undertook. And so really, it's absolutely gorgeous of Letitia Blacklock to take in her childhood good friend, who writes to her on a whim when she's really hard up, and Letitia immediately takes her in, which is really wonderful, even though you can tell that Dora often gets on Letitia's nerves with her stupidity. And then we have a couple of young people who Miss Blacklock has taken in, young cousins. The first is Patrick Simmons. He calls her aunt due to the difference in ages, but really um, they're cousins or distant cousins. And then Patrick's sister, Julia, who seems rather a pretty. um, They're definitely the younger generation and they gently mock their old aunt at times. Also staying in the house is Mitzi, who we've mentioned before. She is the housekeeper and cook, although she always says that in her original country, she was educated and she's a refugee from Europe. Quote, through the door, there was a there surged a tempestuous young woman with a well-developed bosom heaving under a tight jersey. She had on a dirndl skirt of a bright colour and had greasy dark plaits wound round and round her head. Her eyes were dark and flashing, end quote. Oh my goodness, we're going to have stuff to say about her. We also have staying at Little Paddock's another paid guest, so the cousin's pay a small fee, but also we have Philippa Hames, the aforementioned young widow with her young son Harry, who is away at boarding prep school, but comes home for the holidays. And she stays at Little Paddocks, but works uh, nearby as a gardener. Other people who live in the village, well, there's Mrs. Swettenham, who's a widow who dotes on her grown son Edmund, and Edmund, who comes along as rather cynical, well-educated, and he's desperately in love with Philippa, so he's the one telling her she has to forget her husband and move forward. Um, we also have Colonel Archie Easterbrook and, Miss, and his wife, Laura Easterbrook, who is considerably younger and more glamorous. Colonel Easterbrook is the blustery old colonel who's returned from India and is always full of boring Indian stories. Elsewhere in the village, we have Miss Hinchcliffe and Miss Amy Murgatroff, Murgatroyd. So Hinch is very much a sort of a farming woman, 
I think we're meant to see them as a lesbian couple. And then we have Miss Amy Murgatroyd, who is the very sort of giggly, lovely, girly part of that couple. We have a vicar called Julian Harmon and his wife, Diana, who is nicknamed Bunch. (laughs) Um, She is a daughter of a good friend of Miss Marple and is the reason why Miss Marple arrives in the village. And then we have lots of other characters who are sort of around and about the story and get brought in. Um, But I won't talk too much about this because I think it would potentially ruin the plot. So as I said, a murder is announced, starts with this big plot device of a murder being announced in the newspaper. A strange man comes to the house. His name is Rudy Schertz or Skirts. He is a Swiss man. He'd worked at a receptionist at a local spa hotel in Switzerland. He's now come over to England. He's doing the same job. And it turns out he's a petty thief, which is something that Miss Marple notices. Why he's over at Chipping Cleghorn and attempting to apparently shoot Miss Blacklock is unclear. And also why he then himself gets shot. And that's what starts the whole thing off. Let's now turn to whether the book is progressive or regressive. And as I said, in the character of Letitia Blacklock, I feel it's arguably very progressive. She is a very competent international businesswoman who has dealt with high finance rather wonderfully. We also have at least one gay couple in Hinch and Murgatroyd. Arguably, you could say Letitia Blacklock and Dora Bunning. Well, I would say definitely Letitia may be gay. So that's kind of interesting and it's dealt with in a very matter of fact and rather sweet, earnest and admiring way by Miss Marple. Particularly the Hinch and Murgatroyd partnership, I think, is seen with real sympathy and empathy and with no negative judgment whatsoever, which is lovely. But then, of course, there is the treatment of Mitzi, which I would argue is straightforwardly racist. Is it that it's Miss Blacklock and the villagers who are racist? Some of the physical description, like the greasy plaits, just seems like it's coming from Agatha. This is a quote. Yes, I am upset, said Mitzi dramatically. I do not wish to die. Already in Europe I escape. My family, they all die. They are all killed. My mother, my little brother, my so sweet little niece, all, all they are killed. But me, I run away. I hide. I get to England. I work. I do work that never would I do in my own country. End quote. Is she a victim of the Holocaust? Is she a victim of Hungarian prosecution that takes away her entire family? Does it matter? The fact that she's treated as a character basically for comic relief and or as a silly, melodramatic, lying woman that everyone distrusts, I find deeply, deeply disturbing. And it really is a black mark against this novel. Okay, now on to adaptations. There was apparently an NBC anthology series, Goodyear Playhouse production, in 1956 already, with Gracie Fields as Miss Marple, Roger Moore as Patrick Simmons, and Jessica Tandy as Letitia Blacklock. I would have loved to have seen it, but it's been lost to the Darkling Plains. We do have a 1984 Joan Hickson adaptation with... Ursula Howells as Miss Blacklock um, that is very straightforward. Um, I think rather plodding and rather dull, but, you know, it, it, it is what those Joan Hicksons are. Very faithful, rather laboured, but essentially, I think how a lot of people think of these novels. Um, it is fair to say that they make one very good change, which is that Mitzi is renamed Hannah and is said to be Swiss. Um, so they've kind of a little bit softened the appalling nature of that. And then the most modern adaptation is a 2005 um, episode of the ITV Agatha Christie's Marple series with Geraldine McEwen as Miss Marple. It's got an amazing cast, actually. Zoe Wanamaker as Letitia Blacklock, Keely Hawes as Philippa Hames, Elaine Page as Dora Bunner. 
um, Cherry Lungi as Sadie Swetnam, Catherine Tate, the comedian, as Mitzi, Alexander Armstrong as Inspector Craddock. They do make a fair few changes, um, much more straightforward in the lesbian relationship, as you'd imagine, in a more modern adaptation. And certainly this series kind of put, they kind of queered the series of books anyway, so they lent into that. I think it's actually quite fun and, and moves quite fast. They do make changes, um, certainly around the Swetnam characters, but I think actually really watchable and I would highly recommend it. But with that, I'm going to leave this spoiler-free part of the discussion. The next novel that we will be covering is They Came to ba- Baghdad, and this will also be a mini pod because I'm afraid to say it's also not tremendously good. So I'll be covering that. Um, if you want to follow at home, it is one of the thriller series. It is kind of interesting because it takes you to Iraq, published in 1951. With that, thank you for listening and stay tuned after the end credits music for The Solution. <laughs> Okay, so the big reveal for a murder is announced is that Letitia Blacklock is not who she says she is, and she has murdered people to cover up that fact. So when she was young, there was Letty and Lottie, (laughs) and Letty was the financial whiz, very successful, but poor Lottie developed a goiter on her neck, so when you have a thyroid issue and your neck kind of swells up, and in the modern world... And at the time, actually, this could have been easily treated with an operation, but their doctor father refused to let it happen. He was against modern methods. So Lottie's life was blighted. Eventually, the father dies and we get to wartime and Letty takes Lottie to Montreux to have the operation. And it is successful and Lottie has her life back. Letty, meanwhile, dies and Lottie thinks to herself... And I think this is very human behavior and very understandable and empathetic. I can sympathize with this a lot. My sister's died and I want to have her life because I know that very shortly the rich financier that she worked for, Mr. Girdler, is going to die and leave her a fortune. And why shouldn't I deserve that fortune? So she comes back to England. She always wears a, a very inappropriate, chunky pearl choker around her neck to cover the operation scar, which is the first big clue. And she plays her sister. And really the first downfall of Lottie now is her warm heart because she takes in Dora Bunner, her childhood friend. She can't possibly lie to Dora, so Dora knows the truth. And this is why Dora often calls Letty Lottie. um, And is, you know, the flakiness of Dora makes her a liability, which is why eventually Lottie will kill Dora to shut her up, even though she tries to give her a lovely birthday party send off before she does so. So it's really messed up. But getting back to the clues, um, the, the motivation for the first murder is that Rudy Skirts was a hospital porter in Montreux and knows that Lottie has done the switch with Letty and wants to blackmail her. So Letty <laughs> lures, her, lures Rudy Skirts to the house, sets up this elaborate hoax in order to basically kill Rudy Skirts. Other clues, so inappropriate Paul Shoker. The cigarette burn on the table from the lamps and the fact that one was a shepherd and one was a shepherdess and one's gone missing. That's how Letitia Blacklock, Lottie, um, short-circuited the electrics to put the light out by putting some water on a frayed um, lamp wire. We also, another massive clue is that the only person who can be responsible for no fire being on and therefore also giving 
light into the room is Letty Blacklock because she's the one who says to Mitzi, right, we're not going to let light a fire this evening. I'm going to put the central heating on, which is something that everybody comments on when they come into the 6.30 party. They're like, oh, you've got your central heating on already. Other practical clues are that a table against a dummy door has been moved and the dummy door has been oiled, allowing Letitia Blacklock to get in and out of the room very easily so that she can leave the room, kill Rudy Skirts and then come back in and feign the injury to her own body. We're also given a red herring partway through the book, which is that there were actually um, two children, uh, we, we are led to believe a niece and nephew of the Girdlers, who, if alive, would potentially inherit his fortune, not Miss Blacklock. So we're meant to be looking for now grown children who could potentially be hiding their identities. Could be Edward Spettenham, could be Philippa Hames, could be um, the two now grown cousins, quote unquote, niece and nephew who are living with Miss Blacklock. So we're on the lookout for switcheroos, except the switcheroo is wrong. It's Lottie and Letty. And, you know, we get the entire Miss Marple lecture on how nobody knows anyone or has credentials anymore. We know that Miss Blacklock moved to the village where she didn't know anyone. And so why should we take her on her own credentials? And then why has Letty never visited Mrs. Girdler in Scotland before? Why have the photographs of her been removed? And we also get a really interesting textual clue, which is that supposedly the same woman has written two different letters spelling inquiry once with an E and once with an I. So why is she getting spellings mixed up or spelling things differently? So that, along with the Lottie Letty, is another one of those really interesting close reading clues that I love. So there's a lot going on in this plot. A little bit like Death on the Nile, which I obviously forgive because I love that book. It seems like a very, very overly complicated way to get rid of Rudy Skirts and then Dora Banner. It just feels like, oh my word, this could have been done more easily. Was it really worth it? Um, why did Miss Blacklock take in Dora and not get rid of all of the evidence of her sister? Why did she keep the old letters? I think it's ludicrous that Patrick would meet Emma by chance. Surely you'd see a family resemblance between Pip and Emma. And Pip is revealed not to be a boy, but a girl, Philippa Ames. And how on earth is Miss Marple now throwing her voice and being a mimic, for heaven's sake? I also feel that if enough water was spilled to short the vase frayed cord, wouldn't they see a puddle of water? So I just find the whole thing ludicrously overplotted. I mean, Crooked House, I admire because it's so spur. And it's so focused on the psychology and the makeup of the characters who I find compelling. I actually do find the characters in this book compelling. Like I find the the motivation of Lottie to get her life back and the way in which a, a lie that could almost seem harmless, you know, the money was going to come to her sister. She has been denied a life. Maybe this is, you know, the universe giving her a second chance can then get sort of twisted and developed into something really quite sinister and horrible, where this lovely childhood friend that you take in, you end up murdering. Um, so there is there is stuff to recommend itself in this novel in terms of the characterization, the depiction of social change and that how that underpins why this plot can happen, why there are so many displaced people here, why Rudy could be here from Switzerland, why no one really knows who Miss Blacklock is. The idea that identity is very uncertain in this time, I think is fascinating. But just the plot mechanics are ludicrously overcomplex and I wasn't buying any of it. I'm certainly not buying that, you know, a 60-year-old woman is orchestrating this and popping in and out of rooms and shooting here, there and everywhere. I think it's absurd. I really do. I do also want to say that I think this is probably one of the most 
admirable portrayals of lesbian romance in all of Christie. I didn't say this before in the progressive bit because it would be to reveal that sadly one of the members of that couple is killed. And I guess now in contemporary society, we would criticise it. There is a bit of a trope, isn't there, that when you see a happy gay couple, one of them always has to die. But here we go. This is what happens when it's revealed that Charlotte Blacklock killed Hinch's beloved Miss Murgatroyd. With a rush, Miss Hinchcliffe thrust aside others and leapt upon the weak pink figure of Charlotte Blacklock by the table. It took all of Sergeant Fletcher's strength to hold her off. Now then, he said, now then, no, no, Miss Hinchcliffe. Between clenched teeth, Miss Hinchcliffe was muttering, let me get at her, just let me get at her. It was she who killed Amy Murgatroyd. Charlotte Blacklock looked up and sniffled. I didn't want to kill her. I didn't want to kill anyone. So read this book if you read it for the social change. Read it for a really quite affecting love story between two women living in the village. Um, so I wouldn't say don't read it. I just don't think, I think this is kind of medium Agatha Christie. I just don't think it deserves to be in anybody's top 10. It certainly isn't in mine or Pat's, which is why this is a mini pod. But if you love this, and if you think we're missing something, because everyone else seems to love it, please feel free to leave a comment on the YouTube video or to join us on our Discord server and get into the conversation on Agatha Christie there. We really hope you enjoy listening to this and we'll be back next time with They Came to Baghdad. <laughs> Thank you.